0: Lord, we thank you and praise you for today and this day that we've had this morning where we're able to gather together and sing and hear your word taught and for the ministry of fellowship that we have one to another. And now as we uh, gather together again to uh, look at your word and, and uh, to try and understand it better, give us again ears to hear and hearts to understand, eyes to see things. Help me to communicate these Uh, wonderful and glorious truths. Give us a greater hunger for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are going to try and finish the book of Isaiah tonight. Uh, You'll remember last week we we just started into it. We got through the first 12 chapters, uh, and a lot of that, of course, we spend a lot of time on introduction and just talking about some of the themes and the historical setting of the book and things like that. So tonight my focus is really just to walk from chapter 13 through the end of the book. And I was thinking about it again, like there's a lot of information that we're going to try and cover. So if you can come away with one or two things, then maybe that will have been a success. Um, And the way that I want to do this again, I think this is helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for you. But by just trying to walk through it and just pointing out specific verses, and I'll just make the reference to the verse, and I'm kind of summarizing, trying to summarize passages down and point out this is the most important verse in that section. Then maybe that will help you see the larger picture, right? Uh, you know, if you get sometimes you get lost, you can't see the forest for the trees. Well, hopefully, I can point out specific trees that will help you see the forest, if that makes sense. Okay, so that's kind of the 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 goal for tonight. Um, so last time we looked at the first twelve chapters, and and uh, I gave you the whole outline of the book. Uh, if I was going to go back, like. I outlined it differently this time than I did last time. If I were to go through it again i 'd probably outline it differently again, right? You just see things see things differently. So the outline is quite uh, fallible, uh, but hopefully it'll again just kind of give you some some bearings but first 12 chapters, chapters 1 through 5, detailed for us, if you remember, judgment against Israel and against Jerusalem, but interspersed with those judgments were messages of grace and salvation. Remember, chapter 1 opens with that indictment where the the heavens and the earth are called to bear witness against the sin of the nation, right? They've transgressed the covenant, okay? And then we move to chapter 6. We saw that passage of Isaiah's call and his commission to ministry, and I really want us to keep in mind, again, that chapter 6, verse 13, that image that Israel is a felled tree, all that's remaining is a stump, but out of that stump there's a holy seed in it. And that's a theme that will be brought out again and again uh, in the book. Okay? And then we saw chapter 7 through 12, and that intermixed the contemporary, contemporary threat that Judah felt from the nation of Assyria, so here comes uh, Sennacherib. No, Sennacherib will be later on. Here comes Assyria, and King Ahaz is fearful of the, the threat that they pose against them. And so the Lord promises, you know, that's the passage, you know, ask of me a sign. And Ahaz says, I will not weary the Lord in asking a sign. The Lord says, well, I'll give you a sign. And the promises of a greater future deliverance, right? Uh, the Emmanuel God with us, that child. And then that passage goes on to detail, okay, here's how I will deliver you in your current state, but this is all looking forward to a future better king, a better deliverance. And so we have, of course, Isaiah 9. Uh, the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, so on and so forth. Then that takes us to chapter 11, where we see that this promised the deliverer king comes from who? The stump of Jesse, the father of David. And out of that shall come a, a, a little shoot of life, and then that will grow into a branch, and then it talks about that king's reign, and then it concludes in chapter 12 with a song, right? So here's this song of praise. This is what God has done, and, it, and so we are, we are left with that, okay? The other thing that we talked about were just some of the themes in the book. You remember the most prominent theme is the book of that of salvation. I think it was at 55 some odd times salvation or saved or some Uh, version of that word is used. Isaiah's name, you'll remember, even contributes to this theme because it means Yahweh saves, right? So this really could be understood as the central theme of the book. So chapters 1 through 39, we said the book can really be split into two two sections, 1 through 39 and 40 through 66. So we are in the first half of the book, and this is all coming judgment. So we've looked at the first 12 chapters. We pick up in chapter 13, and we now look at oracles against the nations. Okay? And what these oracles do is they show Yahweh's rule, not over just Israel, but, o- but over all the nations. So if you're a faithful Jew living in that land— you hear the promises of judgment against these other nations, and of course you understand that ultimately you will be vindicated because Yahweh will be vindicated as he uh, overthrows these nations even as they are used as instruments of judgment against you in that current time. Okay? So chapter 13 gives us a, sh- uh, a shift to a vision of Babylon, and this is interesting because Babylon's not the world power at this time. Right? Who's the world power? the Assyrians, right? So they're about to be overthrown by Babylon, and this looks past even beyond Babylon, but ultimately to Babylon's fall at the hands of the Medes and Persians. So we're several hundred years in the future. Uh, you see chapter 13, verse 6, this coming judgment through Babylon is described as the day of the Lord. Remember, that's always the, a terrible day of judgment. Whenever you see the day of the Lord in scripture, that's what it is. Uh, you see verses 7 through 16 in chapter 13. It describes what this day of the Lord will be like and what people will feel and experience in this judgment. What we see here that the nations that the Lord uses as instruments of judgment will be judged. So you see in verses 17 through 20 of chapter 13 there that the judgment that the Lord brings against Babylon through the Medes and Persians will make Babylon like Sodom and Gomorrah. right? So they're, they're utterly destroyed. Then we get to chapter 14, and we see after this judgment on Babylon, the Lord will again have compassion on Jacob. See verses 1 and 2, he will set them in their land. And this restoration leads the rest of chapter 14, where Israel is singing a song. And it's a taunt over the fall of Babylon. Okay? Then, as we get to chapter 14, verse 25, we see again a shift. Uh, Assyria is now in focus, okay. And, and Assyria, we've already seen some language of judgment against them going back to chapter ten. But here they are focused on again. They, we see verse twenty five. Assyria will be trampled underfoot. Then you get to verses twenty eight through thirty two of chapter fourteen. You see Philistia, okay. That's the Philistines. Just remember Goliath. Um, look at uh, verse twenty nine a. They are not to rejoice that their oppressor has been defeated. For an even worse enemy will arise from that which is cut down. You see that in the second half of verse 29. Uh, Moab is chapter 15 through 16, 13. We see Moab will be laid to waste. They will be undone. The judgment that falls on them, and this is interesting, look at verses two through four. What it's gonna do is it's gonna lead uh, them to a lamentation. The cities are, are, are judged, so the people are lamenting. And then in verse nine, what it says is that those who have escaped that initial judgment, a lion awaits for them. So there's like a greater judgment still to come than, than even the first one. Then look at the first part of chapter 16, verses one through four. What, what is pictured here is that those who are judged in Moab go to Zion looking for help. Well, what's Zion? Jerusalem, Israel, right? That's where Yahweh is, okay? And here's the, here's the point. The answer that seems to be given to Moab is that israel 's strength, the help of Israel, is found in their relationship with Yahweh, and even more specifically here the promises made to David. If you look at like uh, chapter fourteen or uh, chapter sixteen verse four, let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you, be a shelter to, the, to them from the destroyer when the oppressor is no more, and destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. Verse five. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So isn't it fascinating that in the middle of a judgment against Moab, here's a promise about the king that will sit on the throne after David? Right. So even the nations are to see the hope of Israel is bound up in this promise made to David. Right. And that's your hope, Moab. Right. So that's kind of what what he's telling them to do. Uh, so here's what Moab should do, right? They should become worshippers of Yahweh. They should believe the promises about the descendant of David promised here, chapter 16, verse 4. Um, so all the hope of Israel, all the hope of Moab, and I think we can extend that even further out, all the hope of all the nations is ultimately in this Davidic king, which we will see later on in the book, okay? Then we get to chapter 17, and we get to Syria, and its capital of Damascus, there in view, In here, it talks about Ephraim. Whenever in the prophets you see Ephraim, you think about the northern kingdom of Israel. That's kind of you could say code word. And the reason for that is because Ephraim, remember, was one of the tribes. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, because he got the double portion. And Ephraim, in that territory, is located Samaria, which was the capital city of that northern kingdom. So the point in this in these verses here, when it talks about the glory of Ephraim, it's talking about Samaria and its fall and demise. And so what what chapter 17 is saying is that um, for Syria that is focused on in judgment here, in their day of judgment, Ephraim, the capital of Samaria, Israel, will not be any help to Syria, because they had made some alliances together. Okay? Um, So verse 3, why is that? Well, because Ephraim, the northern kingdom, they're going to face judgment as well. How can they come and rescue when they're in judgment as well? Um, Look at verses 7 through 9. The day of the Lord, again, here's that language, will force these nations to look to the Holy One of Israel. So they're not going to be able to look to their idols or to their altars, the things that they have made. Why? Because they're all destroyed. They can't deliver you. Then we get to chapter 18, we see Cush, or Isaiah calls it the land beyond Cush, the land of whirring whirring wings. Uh, So this is probably referencing Ethiopia, or what we would know as as modern-day Ethiopia. Chapter 19 is Egypt, verses 1 through 15. We see in verse 2, judgment from in Egypt, will come from within. They will fight against each other. Look at verses 5 through 7. The Nile, which they worshipped, okay, that's a source of life for them. It was a god. It will be dried up. Uh, verses 8 through 10, the production of the nation will go away. Uh, and then verses 11 through 15, the wise counselors will be shown to be fools. That made me think about, remember when Moses goes before Pharaoh at first and does these things, and here comes all the magician and the wise men, and they can replicate them to a degree. Well, ultimately, they're showed to not be wise and good counselors. And here again, in this day of judgment, same thing kind of seems to be happening, okay? Uh, Then look at verses 19 through 21. Just like with Moab, right? There's hope found in the descendant of David. So the same thing with with Egypt as well, okay? Um, Assyria also will be blessed. Uh, Look at verse 25 uh, on this day what the Lord says about these nations and and notice these these this change of language. He calls them my people, the work of my hands, my inheritance. Right? So here again, this is like gospel proclamation for the nations. Here's judgment, but at the same time, like there's coming this future day when the Lord will redeem these people and their hope will be found in the descendant of David. Okay? Chapter 20, uh, Isaiah, remember prophets have really terrible jobs sometimes. So Isaiah, for three years, walks naked, right? Wow, that, is that worse than laying on your side for 490 days like Ezekiel and eating your food over cow's dung? I don't, I don't know, that's, that's pretty bad. Um, but what he's doing, he walks naked for three years. What this is doing is picturing how the exiles of Egypt and Cush will be led away by the Assyrians. That is naked, Right, So there, it's the idea of shame and disgrace, and your bare bottoms will be exposed, is kind of the, the point. Okay? Um, and then we get to chapter 21, and again we see this oracle concerning Babylon. Again, uh, the fall of Babylon here is described by a watchman in a tower who sees horsemen coming in pairs. Look at verses 8 and 9. This watchman then announces, fallen, fallen is Babylon, okay, so he sees this coming judgment, and then we get to chapter 22, okay, so we have all these judgments against nations, and then we get to a judgment against Jerusalem. Um, I think that the reason that he places the judgment of Jerusalem in the middle is uh, in the middle of all these other nations in judgment is to show Jerusalem isn't really any different. They're like all the other nations in their sin and in their judgment as well, okay? Um, look at verses 8 through 10 of chapter 22. In the day of judgment, they can count their losses, but look at verse 11. They don't look to the Lord their maker who planned it all long ago. Right? So again, even in, in judgment, they're not repenting. Chapter 23 kind of rounds out, if you would, the nation-specific judgments, and it looks at Tyre and Sidon. Um, and then we get to chapter 24, and we see this uh, universal judgment Uh, for the whole earth. So look at 24, verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. So this is like the the universal day of the Lord. This is the the worst day of judgment that Scripture would, would bring about. So then we get to verse 23 in chapter 24, and we see that this day of the Lord... Uh, will bring about the rule and reign of the Lord of hosts twenty four twenty three then the moon will be confounded, and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. So then we get to chapter twenty five and this leads to another song of rejoicing, like we had in chapter twelve. Remember all those Judgments and promises of a future king in chapters 1 through 11 leads to a song. So it seems kind of the same pattern happens here. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Ultimately, the Lord reigns. Song. So 25 verse 1, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. The revealed plans and purposes of God lead to a song. Which again, like, and it's true even in our lives. As we see scripture and we see what God has ordained for it to happen, right? We, we praise him for it. So that should happen here uh, in the initial readers of Isaiah, just as it is for us. Okay, so 24 talks about the mountain on which the Lord of hosts is reigning, and then we see 25 verse 6, on this mountain a great feast will take place. Okay, uh, you can draw comparisons elsewhere in scripture. Perhaps this is that uh, in Revelation, like the marriage supper of the Lamb, or something like that, okay? It's being spoken of here. Then you look at 25, verse 8, and There is a New Testament passage that reveals much of this same promise in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, right? Swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Okay, very similar language. I think Isaiah and John are seeing the same thing. Okay? Um, Then... It seems what the rest of chapter 25 is doing, or the whole of it, is describing the universal implications of the reign of the Lord. And then when we get to chapter 26, I think what is happening is that it is speaking of the changed hearts of the Jews during this time. I think is what he's, what he's referencing here, okay? So we get to chapter 26, verse 1. It says, In the land of Judah, this song will be sung, We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. So it's like Jerusalem and Judah in this day finally recognize Yahweh for who he truly is and they worship him for it. Because that's been the problem all along, right? Even go back to those judgment chapters before. You count your losses, but you don't look to the Holy One of Israel who planned it long ago. Well, in this future day, they will. They'll recognize Yahweh has put them where they are and has uh, built up the walls of the city, okay? And so chapter 26 goes on. It's a song and it's showing a people whose heart is fully set on the Lord, who see the Lord as their strength and salvation. So 26.8, you hear this, they declare your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. What a change, right? This is a work that God has brought about where a people that, did not say that now do, okay? Verse 13, they recognize the Lord is their true king. Verse 15 of chapter 26, the Lord has enlarged the borders of the nations, of the nation. Uh, This was the goal of Israel's kings, right? That they're expanding Israel's territory. Remember, Israel is the new Adam planted in the sort of garden of Eden, and as Adam's job was to expound the Boundaries of the garden. So Israel's job was to expound or expand the boundaries of the garden. Well, here that's actually happening, right? That uh, those boundaries are being enlarged. But then we get to the end of chapter twenty-six and into chapter twenty-seven, starting verse like twenty, we see a day of fury. Right, Leviathan will be punished and slain in twenty-seven and one. I think maybe what is happening here is a similar sequence to what we saw in Ezekiel thirty-eight and thirty-nine with Gog coming up against Israel. Perhaps we're seeing like a kingdom, and then this final destruction of those who would come up against Israel. Um, that's, that seems like that might be what's happening, but I'm not going to stake my life on it, okay? Then we get to 27.2, and we see this final deliverance leads to Israel now being a pleasant vin- vineyard. Well, this is contrasted with chapter 5. Remember, they're a faithless vineyard. Went and planted it, and all the grapes were wild. They were useless. And so I had to destroy it. Well, now we see this vineyard is no longer unpleasant, but look at verse six. It's a vineyard with fruit and it's filling the whole world, right? It's, it's actually profitable and it's advancing. Um, and then in verse seven, 20, so this is 27.7, um, Isaiah seems to make a shift all the way down through verse 13 where he's talking about the exile that is gonna be coming and there's a cleansing of the nation through the exile, okay? And I think that fits because moving into chapter 28, that's what he talks about is the coming exile on the land, okay? So then we get to chapters 28 through 39 now. This is the next uh, section and there are many subjects here or uh, subjects or themes here but in short, and I think I put this in your notes, there's the fall of Samaria to the Assyrians uh, that is predicted. There's the future fall of Jerusalem. There's a warning to contemporary Judah not to make an alliance with Egypt, thereby putting their trust in Egypt rather than the Lord. And then there's the repeated reassurances of restoration and flourishing for the people, a time they will be ruled by a righteous king and truly love the Lord, okay? Um, just before we move on to the next section, were there questions or confusing things in the last portion we covered. Do you think Isaiah knew the sequence that was gonna happen? No. Just see visions and then- yeah. I well I think the best way to I think about it is the the one guy that said the prophets seemed to view all the future stuff as the new creation as a total package. Right? They didn't necessarily understand how that was all gonna break down, but they knew these things like there is a glorious Edenic day coming. There is a future king and that king is going to suffer, right? So how that all panned out, I don't think they probably understood it entirely. Just as even now, like we're looking back and we still don't understand all the sequence of events. Um, But we do know there's even more coming. And so that's kind of our our hope. Uh, Chapters 28 through 39. This is going to be like Isaiah 3 part that's not my, my plan, but we'll try and get through this, okay? Um, so chapter 28, again, starts with words of judgment on Ephraim. That's the northern tribes. Um, this here we see, again, the proud crown of Ephraim is, a, is going to fall. It's going to talk about it being trampled. Um, look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord will ultimately be Ephraim's crown of glory. So it's not a city, but it's the Lord himself. So here there's a hope for the future. But verse 11, this is all speaking of exile and judgment. The Lord will speak to them through people of a strange lips, so through another nation, right? And again, we understand it's the Assyrians that will come in and carry off the northern tribes of Israel. Then chapter 29 and chapter 28, they both begin with that word awe, which is woe, and woes are always judgment. So think about Jesus' woes to the scribes and Pharisees, same kind of thing happening here. Um, chapter 30, there is also a woe that is, that is uh, spoken of there. Chapter 29 is looking at Jerusalem. Um, so it seems like in chapter 28, the Lord is looking at the capital city of Israel, Samaria. Chapter 29, he's looking at the capital city of Jerusalem. Um, if you look at, this, at these uh, verses, you'll see this, these phrases like this repeated, I will distress, I will encamp, I will besiege. So the Lord is saying, I'm bringing judgment. Against Jerusalem, uh, look at twenty nine nine. You remember Isaiah's commission was to uh, to preach, and it was to harden hearts and to blind eyes, lest the people turn and hear and repent. Well, we see in twenty nine nine that's happening. Right, hearts are hardened, eyes are blind. Uh, look, Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. Right, the Lord is. Is doing this this work of judgment. Uh, we see in twenty nine thirteen Jerusalem's problem is hypocritical worship. So verse fourteen says the Lord will confound their wise. Uh, verse sixteen says he has the right to do this, this judgment. And then verses twenty two through twenty-four say that ultimately this judgment will bring about a cleansing. That's the, the purpose of it. Chapters 30 through 31 are the Lord's pronouncements of woe against Judah for seeking to make an alliance with Egypt. The problem here was that that Judah is looking to another nation to be their deliverer. Well, who are they to trust? The Lord. He's their deliverer. He's their salvation. Don't go looking to Egypt. Um, Look at chapter 30, verse 7, and you can see how the Lord views Egypt's help. Right? He calls them Egypt's help is worthless and empty, so don't trust them. Um Then jump ahead to chapter 32 and here we see the reign of a righteous king verse 1 behold a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice okay so under this king's reign what's going to happen eyes are going to be open not closed, So you to have that contrast with what we saw in chapter 29. They will hear and understand. Basically, what you see in verses 9 through 20 is that all the problems and issues of the nation will be reversed, but this isn't going to happen without judgment first. So that must, that again, that's that cleansing, app, uh, cleansing that will happen. Then we see chapter 33. We, we see the destroyer um, and this destroyer will be destroyed. So here I think this is drawing that comparison like we saw in chapter 10, where the Lord says of Assyria, uh, should the axe boast over him who wielded it? Right. And the idea is Assyria is the axe and the Lord is wielding it. So here the same thing in chapter 33. Why you destroy your nation that's being brought against Jerusalem, why are you going to be proud or boast um, over what you have done? Thirty three ten shows the Lord is exalted in judgment. So thirty three fourteen leads the people to correctly ask, "Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings?" Right. So they they come to see that the Lord is bringing this against them. So then that leads to verses fifteen and sixteen. So who can who can dwell? Well, the answer is the righteous. Verses 15 and 16. Verse 17 of chapter 33. The righteous will see the Lord. And then verses 18, 20, 18 through 24 describe this transformed kingdom. They're the ones who will enter it. Who can dwell in the presence of the Lord? Righteous people. Again, this, this is, uh, we go back to this same theme. Israel had the blessing of having Yahweh dwell in their midst as they were righteous, As they obeyed the the Lord, well, when they don't, right, judgment comes. So here again, it seems the same thing. Who can dwell in the presence of the Lord? Well, the presence of the Lord will be in the kingdom, in his new creation. He will dwell on Zion. Who's going to be there? Righteous people, okay? I think it's kind of what, what we're seeing here. So that gets us to chapter 34. And here the nations are invited to see what Yahweh has done. So verses 2 through 17, he's saying, look at the destruction I have brought. And then chapter 35, verses 1 through 10, he's saying, look at the glorious restoration that I have brought about. I, do, I love, Isaiah does this a number of times, where he's inviting people to look at what God has done. Right? That's the, like what Pastor Jess was saying this morning in the comment about missions. Right? There's one reason for global missions, the glory of God. There is, in Isaiah, he's saying, uh, all the nations and the peoples of the world, what will they do? They will come and assemble to see what God has done. Right? Um, I think if I had a, I probably shouldn't go off my notes, but I will for a moment. Uh, if I have a one knit to pick with sometimes uh, people that, and, and I'm, I'm premillennial in my eschatology, but they, we can often become Israel-focused, and we see Israel as the main emphasis in scripture and that's not the case. God's glory is and what he does to them just says not how great Israel, how great God is, right? And so I think the same thing here. He's inviting them in chapter 35, look what I have done. And that is that leads us uh to worship. Okay. I'll read lightly with this, but people talk about salvation being the main focus. And again, that all points to the right. Lord of God. Yeah. The ultimate thing is I I'm just echoing what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. All for scripture. Right. But it's all about God. Right. Yep. I mean the whole point is he's saving the reason he saves people is that they would praise him, right? So yeah, I do think the exaltation of God's glory is definitely the central theme of scripture. So all of these uh, words of judgment and promise of restoration and this glorious time, look at verse 10, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. All this leads us to chapter 36, which, tr- which uh, gives us one of the two narrative portions that we have. So we saw it in chapter seven and here we see it in chapter 36. And it's interesting, both the, the one in chapter seven is dealing with a contemporary threat and fears about uh, uh, Assyria. And here in chapter 36, it, it does as well. So chapters 36 through 39, the king is Hezekiah. You remember Hezekiah was a good and a godly king walking in the ways of the Lord. And midway through his reign, what happens is that the king of Syria captures some of the cities of Judah, and then he sends a massive army up against Jerusalem to try and besiege it. Okay, And he he begins to taunt the inhabitants of Jerusalem with this guy named Rabshakeh, who was actually, I think it was a... It was a uh, like a high-ranking military official, okay? And so he's like saying, hey, uh, Jerusalem, you can't defeat us. Look at what we've done to all these other nations, okay? So that'd be a little bit, again, disconcerting if you're in Jerusalem and you see all these other great cities fall and then here comes, you know, some guy that's taunting you. There's some disquiet that could that could take place in your hearts, right? Okay, um, and so what he's telling them, part of it is, uh, there, he's saying, you've, you've put your trust in Egypt. Remember, that was one of the issues, because is they wanted to trust Egypt. And he said, we can easily destroy them, right? So they're, they're not going to be a savior. Look at verses 13 through 15. He is seeking to undermine the message of Hezekiah. Uh, verse 13, then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria, Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So Hezekiah is doing the right thing, right? He, he believes the promise of God. He knows what, what will happen. And here comes the Reb Sheka to try and, and um, twist that, okay? So in chapter 37, Hezekiah seeks Isaiah's help. Isaiah comes and he assures him in verses five through seven of the Lord's coming deliverance. So Hezekiah cries to the Lord and he recognizes that these Syrians are mocking Yahweh. He recognizes uh, they're they're not poking fun at just Israel, but at the God of Israel. Um, So in verses 15 through 20, Hezekiah's prayer is that that Yahweh would vindicate himself by delivering Israel. His covenant people, and so then Isaiah prophesies against Sennacherib in verses 21 through 35, and he ensures Hezekiah the Lord has heard his prayer and that he will act, and he does. So we see uh, that. Uh, let's see where is this? Well, 21 is the. Uh, um, well, look at verse 36, 37, 36. How does the Lord respond? He comes and he strikes down 185,000. Assyrians, right? The angel of the Lord comes and so Sennacherib goes home. Israel doesn't even fight. They don't have to use any of their, uh, what king was it? Uzziah, I think it was, that built like trebuchet type things. And they don't have to use that. The Lord fought for them on their behalf. So then chapter 38 shows us the faithfulness of Hezekiah. We read his prayer of praise and response to the Lord in this deliverance. And the Lord, uh, this is the passage also where the Lord adds years to his life, right? Assuring him of of, uh, his healing from this disease. And then in chapter 39 shows us the foolishness though of Hezekiah as he shows off to the Babylonians his great wealth. Here comes this envoy from Babylon, and Hezekiah's like, Hey, look, I have a lot of gold and treasures, and come see my storehouse. And then Isaiah comes in and says, uh, Yeah, the Babylonians, they will carry off the treasures and wealth of, of Israel. And Hezekiah's response is like, Well, at least it won't be in my day, right? So that's, that seems to be his, his response. 39.6 Uh, serves as that prophecy. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Okay, remember that happens in those deportations that we see like in Jeremiah's context and Ezekiel's context, okay? So that's the first half of the book and it stops there. And then we get to chapters 40 through 66, the last half, well, yeah, half of the book or so, less than half. And these chapters i've entitled grace and salvation okay and what these chapters do is they zoom us forward in time okay so you have in isaiah's prophecy here a big length of time and we understand them all generally to be post-exile Okay? So remember, in the history of the nation of Israel, what we will see is that after the deportations from Jerusalem, they're in exile for a period of 70 years, and then they are brought back by Cyrus. Cyrus is the king that makes the decree and allows the Jews to go back to the land. And so Isaiah is going to prophesy about that in chapter 45. Okay? So in Isaiah's time, though, it's not for another hundred years or so that judah is going to fall and so he sees past all of this but these oracles these prophecies are not just dealing with the return of the jews to the land in the next couple hundred years but rather it's a greater exile and this is where we understand that the whole of humanity has been in exile from the garden right Again, God's design was that we would live in His presence in the garden, and sin has exiled us from that. So these are looking forward to a day when we will be a re- we will be uh, there will be a return to the garden, right? And we will again be dwelling in the presence of God. Um, so these chapters give us not only hope for that, but also detail how that will happen and what it will be like. Okay, um, so Jim Hamilton he made this statement, I think I put it in your notes, but he said the physical return to the land that began in 539 BC may end the exile from the land began in 7, began, begun in 721 and carried through 586. But until Yahweh returns to Zion in glory, the exile from Eden begun in Genesis 3 continues. Isaiah's prophecy seems to present the physical return from exile to the land as coterminous with the return of Yahweh to Zion in glory. So basically what he's saying is that the Jews should not view the future return to the land as the kingdom, right? All things are not better. And, and that will, we'll see that like in Ezra, right? They build the temple and they're like, oh man, it's, it's not as good as the last one. Um, so it, it, it's not fully happened. And this is also where we understand that Isaiah just sees the new creation like this is all one package. So he, he packages in there the return to exile, the future coming of Christ, the, the establishment of Christ's kingdom, the new creation. He sees this all as just one package. So that's where we have to try and un, unpack it. Okay? The other thing is that the New Testament helps us to do that as well. So that's why we need to know our Bibles. Chapters 40 through 48, I've entitled The Incomparability of Israel's Savior. So I think that the recurring theme in these chapters is that the Lord is Israel's Savior. So he will save them through the servant, which is a singular person. Um, He will save them through human kings in the near context, which would be Cyrus. We will see their false gods cannot save them and we will see that the salvation and restoration of Israel will be for the glory of God as all flesh will see what Yahweh has done okay so chapters 40 through 41 describe Yahweh as the one who brings exiles home and they begins with a word of comfort and forgiveness uh, he says, chapter 40, verses 1 through 2, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then verses 3 through 5 speak of the path the Lord will make to bring the exiles back, and this return will reveal the glory of the Lord. So I think you're probably seeing like two fulfillments here, right? In the sense that there is uh, this fulfillment of the exile and this atoning for sin in a sense through that, but there's also a future exile and return to the land as well, okay? Uh, verses six through eight contrasts the fleeting nature of flesh with the enduring nature of the word of the Lord. Basically, Isaiah's point is the word of the Lord has, been, has stood and has been shown to be true. You can trust it. Verse 9 tells us what is to be heralded to these people, and that is, behold your God. So then, starting in chapter 40 and verse 10, here's all the things that you need to behold about him. And these verses we're familiar with because they proclaim the greatness, the majesty, the wisdom of God. You know, he says things like, who can measure the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Whom did he consult? All the nations are like a drop in the bucket, right? This is the greatness of God. Behold him, Israel. This is your savior. And then starting in chapter 41 and verse 8, Yahweh is reiterating Israel's unique and special place. The point here, he has not abandoned them, nor will he. Right? So again, this is, this is comforting to people who are going to nearly be in exile, we're going we're to be moved, removed from the land, but the Lord has not forsaken us. He knows us. He loves us, okay? Um, look at uh, 41.11. Those who uh, oppose Israel will perish. Well, this should right away draw us back to that promise made to, Genesis, er, made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse, right? So that's happening here. Um. And then in chapter 41, there's a repeated refrain that goes something like this. Fear not, O Jacob, I will help you. Yahweh's help and provision further demonstrates that he is the one who has done all of these things. You see that in chapter 41, verse 20. Then forty-one twenty-one through 29 deals with those who doubt Yahweh's word. They perhaps doubt the promises of judgment or they doubt the promises of restoration after judgment. And so, either way, we see like uh, uh, Yahweh then deal with their idols, and he's saying, uh, your idols can't predict the future. Um, and then we get down to his conclusion about their idols in verse 21. These idols are a delusion, right? And their worshipers are a delusion as well. Then we get to chapter 42, and we get the first of the servant passages that there are um, in chapter 42, 49, 50, and 52, 53. And Isaiah speaks of, of two servants. One as the nation of Israel was the servant of the Lord. And then this future coming redeemer, who we understand to be Jesus, is also the servant of the Lord. So the first one is the individual, verses one through four. Israel, we will see, is Yahweh's servant. And they have failed in their task. But this future coming servant, he will not fail. Um, Israel is described as a failing, frail, and weak servant whom the Lord will redeem and use. But again, the servant of the Lord, spoken of in verses one through four, my servant is perfect, doing exactly what Israel could not do. So this is where we understand that Jesus is the new and better Israel. Just as Adam, Adam was also a servant of the Lord, uh, and Jesus is the new and better Adam, okay? So chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, the better servant. He is described as one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord will be. He will bring about justice. He is a servant to the nations. He's gentle. That's that phrase, a a bruised reed and a faintly burning wick. He will not quench. He will not break. He's gentle. he gives hope to the hopeless. So you think about all of these things in connection to Jesus. Well, Jesus had the Spirit of the Lord descend upon him in his baptism. Think about the phrase, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Right? That's Jesus. Okay? And then we see in verse, verses 6 and 7 what the Lord will do. Ultimately, verses 10 through 17 tells us leads to singing. He's going to bring about salvation. Then you jump ahead to 42 verse 19. Um, Israel is called a blind servant. Um, I got to jump ahead a little bit here. We're never going to get through all this. Look at like chapter 43. We see again all these indictments of Israel, like verse 8 calls them blind and deaf. Um, in chapter 43, verses 22 through 24, their their failures in worship, we see Yahweh forgiving their transgressions. And then let's go to um, chapter 44. Here you're seeing, again, there's this contrast that's being drawn between the greatness of the Lord and the foolishness of Israel's idols. Um, So here we see... uh, like these questions, who is like me? Is there a God besides me? And then he goes on to detail the foolishness of their idols. Uh, and then get to chapter 44, verse 28. And this is important because it's introducing us to a specific person, Cyrus, who will fulfill Yahweh's purpose. So this is now directly looking ahead to the return of the Jews after that 70-year exile. Um, 45 verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him the gates may not be closed. Then look ahead to verse 13, I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my cities and city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So he's just going to do this. He's going to free the people under him. Okay? Then, let's jump ahead to chapters 49 through 55, and this uh, I've entitled Comfort for a People Who Feel Forsaken. Okay? So, chapters 40 through 48 seem to resound this theme of the greatness and the incomparability of Yahweh, especially compared to the idols. So, these chapters seem to repeat this idea of comfort to people who feel forsaken. Right? They feel abandoned in, in judgment, but What we see is that salvation is coming and then the servant of the Lord passages here seem to show the servant of the Lord is one who will also suffer and will actually be forsaken. He's the one that brings deliverance, okay? 49.1 gets us into the next servant passage. Um. Here we see that the, the servant's ministry is to all the nations. So verse one says it's to the coastlands. Verse six says he's a light to the nations. Verse two, he's given uh, weapons to carry out his task of ministry. Uh, it says he is Israel Israel and Yahweh will be glorified in him. So here we understand again, Jesus is the new and better Israel. Verse four, he labors and commits his cause to the Lord. Verses five through six, he is called to ministry while he's in the womb. And his work is one of redemption and restoration, not only for Israel, but for the nation. So again, this theme, all the nations will come and see the work of the servant. But then notice in verse 7, this servant will be deeply despised. He will be abhorred by the nation, but ultimately nations will bow before him, the chosen one. So again, this is that idea. Here's Israel, you feel despised, Well, the servant will be despised in order to be your savior. Okay, Um, 49.14, this is where we get this sense of the nation of Israel. Uh, Zion feels that the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me, but the Lord's response is, how can a nursing mother forget her child? Neither will Yahweh forget the nation, okay? Then we get to chapter 50, and in chapter 50, it begins to show us that the servant of the Lord, he will bear reproach and be forsaken. So first of all, in chapter 50, there's these questions about uh, a certificate of divorce, and what the Lord is doing He's he's portraying Israel's rebellion as an unjustified divorce, right? There is no certificate of divorce saying in Israel's day a, a husband could divorce his wife for any reason. He just had to write her a, a certificate of divorce saying the problem's not with you, right? So woman, you're, you're free to go. Well, here the Lord is asking, where's your certi- certificate of, of divorce, right? The point being, the fault is on the part of the nation, right? They've been unfaithful. They've been adulterous, okay? So then verses four through nine, we get to this third servant passage. Here we see in verse four that he has given a ministry of the word that sustains the weary. Verse six, we see that he suffers greatly, but verse five tells us he doesn't waver in his obedience even as he's suffering, okay? Verse seven and nine, he's sustained by Yahweh, And his perfect obedience vindicates him. So no one can bring a charge against him, right? Nothing, he has done nothing wrong. Then verse 10, this leads to a call uh, to respond and trust the Lord. Verse 10, to walk in his light, not in their light. Verse 11, there is, uh, in chapter 51, verses one through two, there's a call to remember that Israel is uh, nothing special apart from the Lord's grace, right? He has made them, uh, into what they are and then notice verse 3 the ministry of the servant of this era it, it ushers in an edenic age right so look at verse 3 for the lord comforts zion he comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like eden her desert like the garden of the lord this is where gate okay, again that whole idea of the of isaiah of isaiah seeing everything as a package right well we understand jesus is the servant here but we also know that eden hasn't yet come so but we do understand that it is the work of Jesus that will bring about that day. Okay, does that make sense? <clears throat> all right, let's, we'll try and finish up here. Uh, chapter 51, we see Yahweh, verses 22 through 23, has taken away the bowl of wrath. Uh, in, uh, in Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah takes a cup of the Lord's wrath and he takes it to all the nations and he makes them to drink it. Well, now it's, that cup is taken away. The nations are no longer drinking it. Okay, the Lord's wrath is satisfied. So, chapter twenty, f- chapter fifty-two. Here's an invitation to celebrate uh, this deliverance. Okay, um, verses eleven and twelve portray this deliverance like an exodus, and so the people are are the, you know the the this final return to the new new creation will be a greater exodus than the first exodus. Okay. Um, then we see in chapter 52, verse 13, this servant. So if all of this context that Isaiah is setting for us is like chapter 51, verse three talks about a new Eden, a better Exodus. How's this going to come about? And I think what he's saying is it's going to come about through this suffering servant. So 52, 13, the servant will be high and lifted up, but not lifted up as a King in exaltation, verses 14 and 15. Notice they talk about the astonishment of his appearance. Um, uh, Let's see, where is uh, verse 14? As many were astonished at you. So I think the idea is uh, the nation of Israel, like, uh, they were not a mighty or a great nation, right? They, it's a nation that was delivered out of slavery. And remember the testimony of Rahab. We've heard of your God. They're astonished at the fact of who this nation is. So the same thing with this, this exalted king. They're astonished. You know, uh, what did they say about Jesus? Can anything good come from Nazareth, right? That was, uh, was that, Luke or Andrew. One of the two, right? One of the one of the the apostle or the disciples said that about Jesus, so they're astonished over him. Um, and and then also notice in chapter fifty three, verse two, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Well, that should automatically take us back to chapter eleven, verse one, right? Remember, there the Israel out of that stump, there is a holy seed, and then out of the stump of Jesse, the the root of Jesse, there is a stump, and then. Here comes that root out of dry ground. Here comes that, that uh, shoot off of the elm tree like we talked about last time that can never kill. Um, so here is this, this, uh, this servant. Um, look at verses five, uh, four and five. And I think I put this in your notes, but Stephen Dempster uh, connected this. These verses describe the servant here as being stricken and smitten and afflicted. He is considered an object of divine wrath. But then what Dempster says is this, but he was not suffering for his own sake. He was suffering for the people laden with guilt. The sicknesses of the people so vividly depicted in chapter one are now his. Yahweh strikes him for them, an obedient son for disobedient children. Okay, so that's what he's doing. He is suffering and dying for them. Verse, chapter 53, verse 11, he, unlike the nation of Israel, is the righteous one. They are unrighteous, but he is righteous. And by his righteousness, by his bearing iniquities, he, bears, uh, he, he will make many others righteous. Okay. So remember at the end of chapter 11 into chapter 12, there's a song, so the same thing happens here. At the end of chapter 53, it leads us into a song. In um, this song in chapter fifty four, talks about the covenant that the servant brings. Um, we see verse five: rebellious Israel has been reunited with their Maker. Verses nine and ten: they've entered into an eternal covenant of peace. Then it gets us to chapters fifty five, and the the point is: receive this salvation now. And these wonderful words: Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Right. As Christians, I think the, the immediate connection we should jump to is John four, right? Jesus with the woman at Samaria. If you'd asked me for a drink, I would have given you living water, right? That would have satisfied your, your true spiritual thirst. Then notice also as well, verse three, and this really uh I thought was really cool. So here's this he's he's saying Look at what my servant has done. He's brought this wonderful, eternal covenant of peace. Come and receive it. Come drink, and you don't have to pay anything. It doesn't cost you anything. But then he says in verse three, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. So here he's drawing, uh, he's inviting us into a covenant. Um and the point in this verse is that the satisfaction that we are to find I think in coming to the waters and drinking he's saying it's ultimately found in a Davidic king and you are invited into the same kind of covenant as the Lord made with David. That that covenant that he made with David he said my steadfast love is sure I will not depart from you that's the same kind of covenant we are invited into. I think that's the the point that he's making there, because all of this language is, I will make a covenant with you, or it could be better translated, a covenant for you, right? So this isn't speaking about necessarily the Davidic covenant, but the kind of covenant that we are invited into. All right, let's wrap it up. Chapters 56 through 66, you guys are troopers, this is long and hard, difficult <laughs> like stuff to try and get our, ourselves through, but you just got to plow through it. All right. So these final ten chapters look forward to the full realization of the salvation that Yahweh will bring, and then interspersed in these chapters are contemporary exhortations to do righteousness. So the point is, is th- this future glorious kingdom affects the way that you are to live now. Okay. So fifty-six verse one sets us up really with these these commands. Uh, for Yahweh's day, when he says, keep justice and do righteousness, well, why should we do that? For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. So this is the motivation, the reality of a coming salvation, okay? Um, and not only do these chapters call for righteousness now, but they also juxtapose the unrighteousness of the nation currently with the righteousness that is coming, okay? And, and there's lots of uh, passages in here dealing with Foreigners as well. So it seems to be showing uh, foreigners who do what is right, who trust Yahweh, they will inherit the glorious kingdom before unrighteous Jews. Um, John Oswalt and his uh, commentary, I'm using his outline because he has a chiastic structure to it. Anytime you can find a chiasm, you got to use it. Like that's the best kind of, right? So that's the beginning and end are the same. The next section is the same. The middle is kind of the center point. It works way out. Psalm 25 is a chiasm. It's just, it's also a very cool word to say, okay? Uh, but it basically follows this. Foreign worshipers, ethical righteousness, a divine warrior, eschatological hope, and then it backs its way out. And you see those repeated themes again. Chapter 40, 56, foreigners are going to receive this glorious future salvation, with that phrase, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Verses seven and eight. The Lord gathers, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered. Then we see in verse in fifty-six nine through fifty-nine thirteen the unrighteous deeds of the nations. So it talks about worthless cedars. Drunkenness, idolaters, and child sacrifice. It talks about your righteousness in the sense of you're going through the motions. It will not profit you. Chapter fifty-seven, verse twelve. Chapter fifty-eight also talks about that. And then chapter fifty-nine, verse one. Their sin is what keeps them from the Lord and keeps him keeps the Lord from hearing them. Then we get to this divine warrior. I think it's really picked up in fifty-nine, fourteen. It's an individual. A redeemer, and the point is, is that the Lord will bring salvation Himself. Then we get to chapter sixty, and picks up again the promise made in fifty six one. Um, the revealing of salvation and righteousness has come. So the the instruction is: arise, shine, for your light has come. You see Chapter sixty, verses four through fourteen, the glory of the nations streaming in. So here again, like the nations, all the people are coming to see the glory of Yahweh, that see the things he has done. Verse 19 of Chapter 60, the Lord is the light of the new creation. So here this is makes us think about Revelation, right? There will be no sun or moon, for the Lord your God will be the light of the city. Um, Chapter sixty one it, it speaks of an individual, I think this is the servant as well who brings the good news about the dawn of this era sixty one one through two jesus you 'll remember uh, reads this passage in the synagogue when he and applies it to himself sixty three chapter sixty three moving ahead. Uh, describes an individual who is a conquering warrior who brings salvation and defeats his foes. So that's where it pictures uh, this person coming up from Edom Edom and Basra and his robes are stained in blood because he's trampled out his enemies. Right? He's he's won the victory. And then 63.7 through 65.16 again returns us to the unrighteous deeds of the nation. And the lord 's compassion to a people who continually spurned him, so we see in verse seven, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us, the great goodness to the house of Israel, that He has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love so he 's compassionate when they 're sinners, right and that 's been detailed quite quite clearly um, and this well that was in chapter sixty three sorry i didn 't mention what chapter that was in. And then get to chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. It describes the new creation a new heavens and earth. We see verse 20, life expectancy is radically altered. Verse 25, animal relations are changed. The lion will lie down with the lamb, things like that. So here we are seeing a new Eden, just like we saw back in chapter 11 also talks about this. And then chapter 66 describes final salvation and judgment. In the place of foreigners in this glorious new creation, we see eternal judgment described in like verses fifteen and sixteen, and in verse twenty-four. Right, so like verse twenty-four, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be shall not be quenched, and they shall be in ab- abhorrence to all flesh. Right, so this is like the lake of fire. We think about it in that in New Testament terms. Okay. Um, But we see also in this chapter, those who are humble and contrite in heart, who tremble at Yahweh's word, chapter 66, verse 2, they will be his servants, they will see his glory, and they will declare his glory among the nations. And even verse 21, some will serve as priests. So here's non-Jews serving as priests in the new creation. And ultimately, verses 22 and 23 of chapter 66, all flesh will worship the Lord. And that concludes the book of Isaiah. And I, I do think as New Testament Christians, we should love the book of Isaiah because of how it reveals to us Jesus and ultimately how He will bring it, He is the one to bring about the completion, the, the new creation, the restoration of all things.